Hello everybody, welcome to this week's edition of Coastal Voices. I'm your host Sasha Olat and today I'm here with Ganaji O'Sullivan and we're going to be talking about the Resonating Reconciliation documentaries uh, that have been produced by the NCRA all of this year and it is the NCRC conference here at UVic so we'll talk a little bit about the workshops that are happening around campus and some news, uh, all that and more coming up on Coastal Voices. Thanks for tuning in to CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Hello and welcome to Coastal Voices. Here I am with Ganargi O'Sullivan from the NCRA. Uh, hi, hi, how are you? I am very excited to be here. Awesome. So today is kind of a special episode um, because it takes place right in the middle of the National Community Campus Radio Conference, uh, meaning I've been lucky enough to make a multitude of fantastic connections and meet some really outstanding people. Uh, in the radio community, and one of them uh, is Ganagi, and she is here to uh, talk to us about the Resonating Reconciliations uh, documentaries that have been taking place over the past year. So thanks so much for joining me today, and could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the role that you play in the Resonating Reconciliation? Okay, well, my name is uh, Gennarjee O'Sullivan. I'm Kwagi Otha um, from the Tlaoitsis Nation. And Tlaoitsis means mad, angry people. <laughs> and that's who I am. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I've, I've been involved with community radio for about 20 years. Uh, I was at, uh, I've been through the full nine yards. Mm-hmm. When I was born, uh, my mother uh, left me with uh, my relatives and uh, the relatives uh, were quite dysfunctional at the time due to residential schools. And um, I went from living with my relatives and being apprehended. Uh, From there, I was taken to a foster home. Mm -hmm. But luckily, I was taken to a foster home, which was run by First Nations elders. Mm -hmm. And they kind of took me under their wing. However, were not able to look after me after the age of five because they were in a foster home that was like a receiving home. And from there, I ended up in the residential school. And that was in the 70s. -hmm. And at that time, the residential schools were just beginning to be shut down. So the elders were concerned that they would lose track of me and the foster care system didn't want to see me jumping from one home to the other and so they set me up with a a couple an elderly couple one was a a australian and Mm -hmm. the other one was an irish canadian Mm -hmm. my mom was the aussie and my dad was the irish canadian Mm -hmm. so i was adopted and part of the 60s scoop my mother was a residential school survivor her i mean she's not a survivor she's passed away Mm -hmm. but she was uh went to the residential school so i'm both a residential school survivor and an intergenerational survivor So I've been through a lot. I met my brother when I was 19. Mm -hmm. He was 23. I lived in Mission, BC. He lived in Burnaby, which is 60 miles apart. Mm -hmm. And we never got to meet each other until I was was 19. Wow. 
Wow, that's heavy. When I met him, he introduced me to co-op radio. Because he was doing a show called When Spirit Whispers. Mm -hmm. And that's now the show that I currently do there. And since uh, that show, uh, I now do When Spirit Whispers, another program called Snow Isles. And that's a language and cultural program which celebrates language. Not just the... uh, Hunkamilum or the Helkamilum, but we've also have a elder. His name is Woody Morrison. He's Haida, mm-hmm. and he's helping to revitalize language on that program, along with a Getsanamek lady, and her name is Barbara Harris. That's awesome. It's an awesome show. We've also highlighted the Cree language because Vancouver is a melting pot and mm-hmm. of a diverse First Nations people. Mm-hmm. So it's been great to do that show. And then I also have a show called Late Night with Savages on one. 100.5 FM at www.coopradio.org. And then Thursdays, I do a program called Klahawia. And <laughs> on top of that, I do a program at CGSF called Nation to Nation. It's a campus radio station just like this one. Mm-hmm. And I help uh, Woody Morrison mm-hmm. do a show at CITR called Language to Language. Nice. I'm very dedicated to communication, yeah. to, to communications and see the need, not just for stations, but also for other First Nations broadcasters to come on board and, uh, and, and, and express themselves and, and mm-hmm. uh, reach their community mm-hmm. through uh, radio. Well, wow, you're media. doing a lot in radio. That's awesome. And you also are a board member on the NCRA. Well, actually what happened is I started uh, off uh, becoming a program coordinator at Co-op Radio Mm -hmm. uh, on the committee, pardon me, and then I got on the board at Co-op Radio, and from there I was sent to the this conference about like six years ago oh wow and for the first three years a couple of the elders they're not native but elders to the ncra people like frida weirden from cgsf and Catherine fisher who was the president at the time kept rallying me to become a, a board member mm-hmm. and so one year i tried i failed the next year i went back and built up my confidence and was able to articulate what it is that i could do for the board and mm-hmm. why they should elect me and i got elected and it was by being on the board that i was able to rally the board and encourage the board to apply for this funding through the truth and reconciliation commission and a part of that that uh initiative was uh, because the membership recognized that there was a lack of representation of First Nations people. Mm -hmm. So we decided to get this grant and to engage 40 stations to open their doors of communication to our people in their communities Mm -hmm. so that they could share stories about residential schools. And they seem like the perfect people to do it. We are the perfect people to speak for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, from... um, Region to region, it's really unheard of. First Nations perspectives is unheard of. And we need to hear that. Not only do we need to hear these stories and to tell these stories, but, you know, the outer community needs to to hear that. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we need to hear it not only for ourselves and and share these stories with others is so that we can begin to build new relationships based on this understanding of the history Mm -hmm. that our people have been through. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's fantastic. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today and sharing a bit about yourself and, and your work uh, with the NCRA and the various radio stations and the radio shows that you produce. Yeah. Uh, what we're going to do now is get into some resonating reconciliation clips and and then we're going to talk about them and have a little bit of dialogue around them. Um, so just forewarning, it is going to be some... Uh, triggering content so uh, just be aware of that uh, yeah, get your counselor's number out and keep it on speed dial mm-hmm. you know bring a friend with you to listen with you don't mm-hmm. do this alone if you don't have to mm-hmm. um, so that then after you can have a discussion about it mm-hmm. you know that there are up to 40 first nations people across canada who have participated in this mm-hmm. project resonating reconciliation yeah fantastic from all over canada so uh without further ado we have some of those uh beautiful documentaries to play for you and then we'll get back and have a little bit of content uh or dialogue around that so thanks for listening to cfuv and uh this is it Resonating Reconciliation is an effort from the NCRA and over 40 radio stations across Canada to produce 30-minute documentaries for the radio about Indian residential schools and the impact that they've had on Indigenous communities and people in Canada. For this program, I've pulled three example programs to highlight the work that's being done surrounding Resonating Reconciliation. The programs I will be highlighting today are from CFBX with Amy Jones, Arthur Manuel, and Chris Albanati. Another program from CJAM with Andrea Landry. Also from our own January Rogers and her resonating reconciliation documentary, which includes a multitude of interviews that took place, as well as my own interviews with Carrie Newman. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. Magizio de Kwe Dijnikaz, Makoadodem, Hispat First Nation, Donjaba, Anishinaabe Kwe Indau. My name is Andrea Landry. My traditional name is Magizio de Kwe. It means Eagle Heart Woman. I come from the traditional territory of Hispat First Nation. I'm an Anishinaabe Kwe, or in the English word, Ojibwe. I am currently a master's student at the University of Windsor in communications and social justice, and I am also the youth executive for a national organization in Canada called the National Association of Friendship Centers. We're the largest urban infrastructure in Canada, and we cater to the urban Aboriginal population. I'm also the North American focal point for the Global Indigenous Youth Caucus for the United Nations, which means basically that I promote and advocate for Indigenous issues on a global scale. I also fight for the rights of Indigenous peoples with the Indigenous Rights Revolution called Idle No More. And it is through this that I am currently completing my thesis on Indigenous Rights Revolutions in Canada and what it means to be Indigenous in Canada and how we got to where we are today. So today I'll be speaking about reconciliation and more specifically about the residential school period that happened in Canada and how it has affected my family in a variety of ways. So the history of Canada is something that is whispered in classrooms across the country and something that is banished from textbooks all too often. Yet the truth of this history lies in the hearts of my people. The stories that come from the past have affected my present and will affect the future if the stories lay secret and if the truths of my ancestors are left forgotten. 
First came Confederation. This came with colonization in 1867. Then the residential schools in Canada were established in the late 1870s, with the schools legislated to kill the Indian and the child, as stated by Sir Duncan Campbell Scott. These schools ran for over a century, with the last school closing in 1996. It has been estimated that approximately 80,000 children were stolen from their homes and taken to cities with little chance of returning back to their traditional livelihoods and traditional territories. Parents who hid their children were often imprisoned. And the reason why their parents had hid their children from being apprehended and taken to these schools is simply because they knew the truth behind these schools. These schools came with physical, emotional, spiritual, and sexual violence inflicted upon young children. Many of the children who were taken from these schools to these schools came with stories of violence, abuse, death, and injustice. Many children were buried in grave sites unmarked, and their stories are being left forgotten in the dirt. Last week was the fifth anniversary of the residential school apology made by Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Yet the reality is, not much progress has been made since the apology. The federal government at this point in this time have not walked their talk. They have made an apology to the survivors, which they formally called victims. Yet the conversation has changed simply because Indigenous peoples are standing up. We are stating that we are not victims of these schools. The future generations are not victims. We survived, our people survived, and our traditions survived. Speaking to elders from across the country has shown me just how much healing has yet to come. Although the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada was established to share the truth of the residential schools in Canada, and the mandate states it was created for the child taken, for the parent left behind, the one question that looms in my mind is, what about those who never made it out alive? Reconciliation can come with legislation, with policies, procedures, and mandates. Yet it can't aid in the healing of thousands of rape victims, thousands of those who felt abandoned, who lost their mother tongues, who grew ashamed of their skin color, afraid to practice ceremony, and most importantly, lost connection with who they were as Indigenous children. For those children who were saved from those schools, for those children who were kept at home within their traditional communities, even while they were living at home, their traditions were banned, their ceremonies were banned. If they were caught practicing ceremony, if they were caught doing a powwow, if they were caught smudging, if they were caught praying, their parents were imprisoned as well, and they were fined. And many of these children and parents were not allowed to leave their reservations. They had to have access and a permit from an Indian agent in order to go into the city and in order to advance within their own lives. So the residential schools came with a myriad of other confrontations for Indigenous peoples, other obstacles, and these obstacles affected their daily lives, and it affects our lives still. My grandfather, George Goodchild, comes from a community in northwestern Ontario where I also come from. This community has been moved and shifted to new areas of land, but I still call it home. Pogwashin, or in the English language, Payspot First Nation. My grandfather was taken from his home and placed in the residential school about three hours west in Thunder Bay, Ontario. His story is never spoken of, his truth is left quiet, and through the course of his lifetime, it led to the eventual death by the time he was in his 50s. Alcohol was the answer. Imagine, children as young as three were apprehended, forced into trains and taken into areas of the land they don't recognize and slapped around if they spoke Anishinaabemowin. 
This story isn't only my grandfather's. It was my great auntie's. It is within our elders. It is within our community leaders, our medicine people. These stories come with kidnapping, rape, and sexual abuse from those who ran the missionaries, physical violence in the form of slapping, whipping, and hitting for speaking the language or having a difficult time understanding English, embarrassment tactics, and the horrors that are unthinkable. A story once of a 16-year-old sis- or six-year-old sister forced to watch her four-year-old sister die as a nun pushed her out of a school window for disobeying. The body never to be found. Stories of young boys forced out of their beds late at night and taken into dark rooms, forced to do sexual acts against their will. Violence and abuse were not our traditions. Yet these young people were taught that this was the only way. That if they didn't follow what the priests and the nuns were telling them to, what to do, they would be violated even further, or perhaps even murdered. With 130 schools across the country, I often wonder how many stories are left to be silenced within these territories. How many children's voices are left behind in those brick walls? These are the realities my grandfather had to live with day in and day out. Yet he had to raise a family. He had to remember his trap lines on the back of his hand. He had to honor the language of his ancestors as difficult as it was to speak it after being told it was the devil's language. The darkness continually pushed at him, I'm sure. The ability to raise a family became difficult as the concept of family was broken during the times of the residential school period. Parenting skills became scarce and anger filled the homes. My mother's childhood was filled with violence as well, as well as alcoholism and abuse. Yet this was the cycle, the cycle that came from the residential schools. The truth was these realities were not left within the walls of those schools. My grandfather was taken away at a very young age. He never really spoke about the abuse, about the violence. Yet last year I came across a, 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 an elder who went to the same residential school as my grandfather and she spoke of his story. She told me how she knew him and how he was a very quiet man, a very quiet boy at the time. And during the one time they got to go home, her parents didn't pick her up. So she went back to my home community with my grandfather. And she said she could not believe how traditional my community was, how the medicine woman that took them in made her reconnect with her language, made her reconnect with the land, made her reconnect with her medicines. And when she had to go back to the school, she was terrified because she knew that this was one of the small moments in her life that she was able to be proud of who she was as an Indigenous person. She was allowed to speak the language proudly. She was allowed to share the stories proudly. And she was allowed to understand why we are the way we are. Yet back at the school, when they returned, it was back to the trauma, it was back to the violence. It was back to the prayers that weren't in her mother tongue. This disconnect led to a concept of, a sh- of feeling shame, of not recognizing or not wanting to recognize herself as an, as an indigenous person. Yet when I spoke to her last year, she thanked me and she thanked my community. She said, miigwech for your community for taking me in for when I was only eight years old, I felt so alone at that school. Yet when I came to your community, I felt proud of who I was as an Anishinaabe Kway. To speak of the experience at those schools came with the concept of opening up, of learning how to feel safe again. This never happened for my grandfather. The pain was difficult, so the pain was left inside. My mother speaks of her childhood occasionally, of the trauma, of the violence. Yet she always states that my grandfather was just hurting. 
She came to the point of forgiveness, and this is important for our communities. Many of our older generations who have attended these schools are filled with anger and hurt and frustration. And it's up to us as the younger generations to really come forward and recognize that this just comes from the pain that happened in those schools. My mother tried to bring us up the best way she could, and she did a good job. Yet some of the same teachings were within my childhood that were in hers. Abuse and trauma occurred. It is within her generation that we begin to see the healing occurring. Growing up, my mother drank quite a bit, and it was through the alcoholism that the violence really did become quite astronomical within my own childhood. And I came to a point within my own life where I recognized that this came from the residential schools. It came from the process of colonization. If my grandfather had stayed in his home community, if he had lived off the traditional land as we have formerly done, my family wouldn't have been the way it was. We wouldn't be struggling for food. We wouldn't be struggling for shelter. We wouldn't be struggling within a Western world just to have enough money to get by. Because the reality is Creator would have provided for us. We would have all the moose meat we wanted. We would have all the fish we needed to survive. And our ceremony would keep us intact, would keep us grounded. Yet living in a city, it was quite impossible to have this kind of connection. And with my mother being filled with the trauma that she was filled with, it was inflicted within my own childhood. That was from Andrea Landry, who uh, is a UN uh, First Nations caucus member. And uh, I'm here with Ganargi O'Sullivan, and we're highlighting resonating reconciliation during the NCRC conference at UVic. Um, so in that documentary, you had a really uh, great perspective from a young person who has seen uh, the damages of residential schools and Indian residential schools within her family and uh, the nature of what it can do to one's culture. Um, how do you feel listening to that? Well, I like that she was able to describe uh, and let us hear uh, the intergenerational effects mm -hmm. of residential school mm -hmm. and how it impacted her life and her mother's life and then her grandfather's life. And mm -hmm. through this Resonating Reconciliation documentary, she was able to um, find and create a better understanding within her own family. Mm -hmm. And uh, hers was a little different to a lot of the other Resonating Reconciliation documentaries mm -hmm. because she did, uh, it was like a narrative for like a half an hour, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, just her describing her experience and and the historical impact of residential schools. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent yeah, job. She was great. She was great. Um, yeah, a really unique perspective from a young person, which is, you know, really important to show the, the effects uh, long-term of what residential schools can do. Um, up next, we have something from CFXB, I believe. And um, oh, that one's really great mm -hmm. because it talks about language revitalization mm -hmm. and also talks about how the residential schools were instrumental of taking the language, taking the culture, which mm -hmm. then led to the taking of the land. Mm -hmm. 
Fantastic. Okay, I'm excited to hear this. Uh, here we go. Auntie, my mother finds it beneficial for her. That the government tried to silence. Gary Goffertson is a sequence educator, an award-winning poet, a singer, a drummer, and a dancer. As an educator, Gary is a principal at Sklep School of Excellence, a school for children in kindergarten to grade 7. The school is located on the Tukamloops Indian Reserve and is physically less than a mile from the red brick building that used to be the Kamloops Indian Residential School. We met with Gary at Riverside Park in Kamloops and asked him if he thought the residential school system was successful in destroying the Sequemth language. One of the things that we all know about our languages is that our language was born from the land. It was born from the universe. Do I believe that the white people were successful in wiping out our languages? No. I do believe that they were successful in creating English thinkers rather than Sowetan thinkers. When we use English, we're thinking in a value system that is in direct conflict with our own spirit, so to speak. Our language, once again, survived despite the dominance of English. I say the dominance of English. Now that means that our language wasn't wiped out. In my school, last winter, our chief and council came in to my school and they challenged the kids there. The chief and council did this, the leadership did this. They said, what would you like us to be challenged with? They were thinking maybe floor hockey or volleyball game or, you know, maybe basketball game or something like that. One of the girls put up her hand, very shy girl, she put up her hand. She says, I want to talk about the land in Sohwepen's gene. So if you're going to challenge us, we will accept the challenge, but it will be a debate in Sohwepen's gene about the land. So we chose kids from kindergarten to grade seven in our school to debate the chief and council. So there were seven of them, eight of them. There's eight people in our council. So we set the debate. I think it was the most humbling experience for our community here. Because when every child that got up could speak almost fluently for 15 to 20 minutes straight about the land different aspects of the land. They covered medicines, they covered fishing, they covered water, they covered the mountain ranges, they covered the valleys, they covered the animals, they, they covered the people's interaction, and they got up and they spoke. Each one of those kids, right from kindergarten, right up to grade seven, in Sowetan's gene about the land. The parents cried. They just couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that these kids were able to 
talk about something so powerful, it just humbled everyone. You could have heard, you know, that old cliche, a pin drop in that gymnasium. It was so profound and it was so powerful. So that's what I, that's why I say, will they win in the end? I don't think so. When it comes to speaking the language in our communities, there's lots of work to be done. Lots of work to be done. And there are so few people. And it's very, very typical with any major issue within our communities. There's so few people that have the skills and abilities that they're so burdened with carrying so many aspects of what is essential for our communities to th thrive, that they become tired. Our elders are dying earlier. Why? Because they're tired. Our speakers are dying earlier. Why? Because they're tired. They have so much work to do. But with this new wave of children coming up, there's a lot of hope there. So now we've planned on having an annual gathering of that council. We'll debate our children about the land. And this is for our nation. I hope the rest of our nation will do the same thing. We hear that word, you know, Wilma, 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 how do you say that again? Wilma, Wilma, Yaos. I don't know how I was going to ask you. Yeah. Wilma Yaos, Wilma Yaos, you see. That's forever and ever, right? So, and even myself, I had to return back to the language because I knew the songs already. I knew the dances of our people. I know some of the ceremonies of our people. And going back, I had to return back to the language myself. It's not an easy thing, but it's done with passion. So that's the key, I think, that overturns that. It, it takes that struggle and the challenge to become, you know, your friend, really. So, it's true, our people have gone back to speaking English in our, in our meetings. But it's not only speaking English in our meetings, it's where they have our meetings. I keep saying this over and over and over again. If you're going to talk about something so important about the land, then get out on the land and talk about it. Sit out there. Why do we have these conferences in downtown Vancouver when we're talking about issues of land? Why do we have these conferences in Toronto when we're talking about language? Why do we have these conferences in Montreal You know, when we're talking about our politics? because politics arose from the land itself, right? So why are we doing that? Why are we going out into the land and talking about the land when we're talking about it, you know? It's like they're talking about something that they don't know what they're really talking about, you know? But another thing I really want to point out that points to the, the rise of the importance of our, of our language and natural resources 
is in the last few years within our nation basket making camps have arose uh, berry picking camps hunting camps all of these things where they're going back into the land you see so that's what I mean by things are awakening and it's too powerful to stop bigger and bigger we need different people to speak in different areas and have them concentrate on those areas for example art is very art manual is very well versed in Canadian policy keep them going on that the berry pickers keep them going understanding that song how it's connected to that to that berry to that leaf to that twig to that branch to that piece of ground to that ant or worm or whatever it is to the bird that sits on that branch to the animal that comes later and eats the berry so that they can think in that way because when they activate that song when they're going to pick that it wakes everything up and that's why I don't believe that we will be wiped out as long as there's a speaker and as long as there are people who can continue those practices they're not even practices it really becomes a way of life and then eventually our people will go back into our communities it's already starting when I go to band meetings I don't speak in English I don't care if they understand me or not it's not up to me to apologize for my language to those that don't understand and it's not up to me to translate it they have to go out and find out what it means Okay, that was another uh, documentary from the Resonating Reconciliation efforts made by the NCRC of Canada, or NCRA of Canada, um, and that was a little bit talking more about language revitalization and uh, how important it is in our Indigenous communities to uh, perpetuate our own languages and to create... Um, spaces for our young children and our youth to learn their language, to learn their culture, and uh, to honor their ancestors in a good way. Yeah, you know, that documentary is an excellent example of a community uh, creating acts of reconciliation, mm -hmm. you know, because not only do we have to reconcile with ourselves and our own experiences, but we also have to reconcile with others too. And these ones are, are have described to us that they are reconciling the language and revitalizing that as, as a means of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And it was produced by Amy James, Arthur Manuel, and Chris Albanetti. And, uh, you know, you heard Gary Godforson, but if you continue to listen to that particular radio documentary by CFBX, um, 
you can find uh, that uh, Janice Billy and Ryan Day, Amy Jones, are also heard within this documentary talking about the importance of language and culture and their own governing system. Mm-hmm. It's great. You know, Gary Godfordson, and, you know, you heard that he's a teacher, but he's also an author, and he's com- recently published a book called The Thunderstorm Within, mm. and uh, he launched it in Kamloops, and I've invited him to my Red Jam Slam oh, on cool. June 21st uh, at the Heartwood Cafe in Vancouver awesome. on June 21st, so if you're off the island and on the mainland, come on and check him out. He's a beautiful man. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great idea. We have our own Red Jam Slam here on Friday from, uh, I believe, doors open at 6.30. It the event starts at 7 and it goes till 9 p.m. And that's uh, with the Standing Nation drum, Paint the Town Red, and our own January Rogers doing some poetry and uh, reading her work. And uh, there'll be refreshments and it's free and it's at the First People's House uh, here at UVic on the quad. So if you want more info on that, you can check us out on Coastal Voices on Facebook. You can go to my Twitter, at Sashoulette, or uh, this UV, or CFUV's Twitter, at CFUV. Uh, check us out online at www.cfuv.uvic.ca. And uh, for now, I'm just going to get back into the Resonating Reconciliation. January Rogers and, I believe, uh, Cowboy Smith produced this uh, <coughs> amazing res- Resonating Reconciliation documentary. And in part of that, I was able to work with Carrie Newman. So if you've been a listener of Coastal Voices, you will definitely have heard uh, my interview with Carrie Newman, who just uh, opened up his exhibit of the witness blanket here at UVic at University Center. So I would encourage you to come see that and to also check the CFUV SoundCloud for that interview. Uh, Getting back into this, this is another Resonating Reconciliation documentary, and uh, this is produced by January Rogers. Find solutions and resolution. Brian Sampson is a member of the Sartlip Band. He is 35 years old with two generations of residential school survivors above him and is part of a third generation who is seeing a fourth generation come into being. Brian speaks with his community and family members about the effects suffered then and still being suffered through today. Effects on individuals, whole communities, the culture, the land, and the language. Interviews featured in this documentary include and in order of appearance are Angel Sampson, Tommy Paul, Murray Sampson, Lawrence Paul Yaquilipton, Naomi Sampson, and John Elliott, with songs by John Elliott, Russell Wallace, and Veronica Johnny. Oh, <laughs> 
like many other people in our community, it uh, affected all our family members. Our older brothers and sisters came home with different behaviors. I didn't see it till later on in life when they were there were parents and their kids were the same age as me. They had strict way of being with us, and religion seemed to be a big part of their world. And they tried to instill those beliefs in us, and we didn't understand why. Well, it impacted my life through being raised with a, a residential school survivor. My father was in there, and my uncles. You know, just growing up, it was different because my father was really strict. You know, part of the the thing that he that he brought home from the residential schools because there was so much discipline there transferred onto us. You know, growing up, I had a pretty disciplined life, and uh, yeah, I got quite a few beatings because of it. And you know, in the end, I know it, it helped me, but I knew that that wasn't my father that was doing that. That was just what happened to him when he was growing up. So. Still impacted me in my present life from since I was uh, six years old when I first went into the residential school system at the Sartlip Day School. And remembering a lot of these things as we hear about uh, the idol no more and some of these questions in, questions resurfacing, unanswered questions from a lot of people who wish they would just consider how much damage has been done through the residential system that a lot of our people are stuck in different cycles that was created by the government of Canada. I'm the third youngest of 12 and the youngest of our family, Virgil, is he was part of that system as well so not able to talk to all my sisters and brothers about their their experiences so I don't know how many of them actually went but I know most of us have gone through that system or some type of boarding school. It's and I think it's a time in history where we're looking at residential school and <clears throat> what happened and are we prepared for for the truth? Are we prepared for the reconciliation? So it, will it work? No. Uh, is it important for us to look at it for the public? Yes. It, do natives want to show it? Yes, no. There's a lot of shame when it comes to boys and girls being violated, abused, and sometimes even killed in residential schools. So it's that history is really ugly and creepy, and people don't want to go there. Indians want to forget.
was growing up with a father who didn't attend, but many of his brothers and sisters did. And I think um, what impacted him was he just really didn't, uh, you know, come out of his shell. He kind of just stayed within for so many years, actually became a severe alcoholic. And so it really impacted me because not having a father there to guide me through father things. And well, I talk about residential school uh, in regard to my own mother. My mother was, uh, she's 93 years old now, and she was taken to residential school when she was uh, only four years old and spent uh, 11 years there. And um, all my aunts and uncles of her family were all taken to residential school and left my grandmother at home with with uh, just a lot of worry. My, my grandmother died fairly young, I think due to the fact that she she was just uh, heartbroken to not to be able to raise her own children and had them taken away like that. Because of uh, residential schools, uh, it's um, impacted all our families, that uh, very few people uh, came out of res residential school um, knowing their language. Uh, our language is in Chawton, which is a, a portion of the Straits Salish uh, language all along the inside of Vancouver Island here. Right from Sukha to uh, the Songus area in Sandwich and White Rock, all included in our language, nearly was annihilated by the, the residential school uh, process that was taking place. <laughs> And uh, so all of the loss of our stories, our teachings and all that were nearly lost. It's because of a few, a few um, determined elders that the language was, was able to be recorded and written down. My own late father developed a writing system to develop the, to uh, write our language. Today we're teaching it in our tribal school to our, our 200 children that go there. strength are women you know tell our women come together and say this is enough of our children that have gone into the hands of the government since the start of the residential school system it's got a lot of strength that we forgot to rely on and that's within our mothers and our grandmothers you know those those that have buried us us men into this world is 
how many of us move forward is through the strength of our women. And I think much of this has got to be planted back into the minds of our people is that man and a woman, we had our duties. So until a lot of these things are thought back in our own way of thinking, how we help each other, as we've seen in time of when I was a child, how I've seen many of the families work together. And even if there was, there was still that alcohol problem, but our families were more tightly knitted together the way we traveled, you know, crop picking, all these different things that how we did move forward was in a more wholesome manner. And I think how we are going to move forward too is start bringing our children home. I know that a couple of my sisters uh, over the years had uh, um, attended uh, group sessions and whatnot. Uh, they also, though, uh, did work on behalf of the church, uh, doing surveys and whatnot for the needs of our people and recorded those needs and, and resources and services that may have been available to our people at that time was shared with our community members, but aside from those two, I don't think anyone else got any real uh, serious therapy um, to deal with it, with what they went through. I think they all need to, to seek some kind of counsel, um, whether it be done tr in a traditional way or if it be done in the European way through uh, counseling sessions. But I think we need to deal with what has happened um, so that our families can be better together. That's the only way I see um, any of our people going forward. Okay, once again, you're listening to CFUV 101.9 FM. I'm here with Gennady O'Sullivan, and we're talking resonating reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And we just want to uh, give some shout-outs to other producers who are in part of this. Yeah, like, so far today you've heard, you know, from Janet Rogers, her production, and uh, uh, Chris Albernati and uh, Arthur Manuel, and uh, quite a few First Nations producers were recruited to do this, and they were recruited from the campus, and uh, they are the perfect people for for uh, producing these documentaries because, first of all, they're First Nations, they have a, a strong background in education, and um, have and are survivors or affected as an intergenerational survivor. Mm -hmm. And that's why this was like a match made in heaven to couple like the stations with the people on campus. And Mercedes-Benz is one of them from CFMI from St. John's. Mm -hmm. In Burnaby, uh, they invited Jessica Buffalo, who is Cree. She shared her own personal story of intergenerational survival. And then also they also uh, recruited Orina Skew 
from the Squamish Nation to do a resonating reconciliation documentary right here on the Gabriola Island at CKGI. Ian Class Caplet was one of the producers along with CJ Rice and then there in Radio Regent a lady by the name of Joanne Bear who is a Cree and CJUM FM in Winnipeg hired Timothy Matin and Dr. Robert Falcon Ouellette. Any relation, Sarah? No. Sasha? <laughs> no, no relation. No? Yeah. There's a lot of Ouellettes out there. <laughs> yeah. And then there's Lauren Crazybull, who is from CKXU in Lethbridge. So as you can hear, just from these few producers mm-hmm. that I've named, uh, we've been able to cover the stories of survival from region to region and also within the project identify what reconciliation means to those communities. And I thought that was one of the most important factors of this work mm-hmm. and while we were asking producers to produce these stories and guiding them through the process we were trying to impress on them that this is your opportunity and your community's opportunity to be heard from nation to nation station mm-hmm. to station mm-hmm. 40 different stations are going to be listening to these documentaries because CFUV mm-hmm. produced a documentary you are now contracted to play all 40 radio <laughs> documentaries and we have been station. yeah I mm-hmm. A little while ago, I played a Jessica, the one Jessica Buffalo did, and that was great. And uh, they will be coming up throughout my programming uh, this year. I'll be sprinkling some resonating reconciliation in uh, here and there. Um, just uh, to cover all the documentaries because there are so many fascinating and really, really powerful and touching stories there. So and We also made a bunch of PSAs and mm-hmm. help, were able to hold five Red Jump Slams across the country, and that was a benefit for us as well. Yeah, again, we have a Red Jump Slam coming up. I'm just going to real quick uh, do... A shout out to the Red Jam Slam that's happening on Friday, uh, this Friday, June 6th, at the First People's House at UVic. Yeah. Uh, you can get here by bus, and the 4 and the 14 are the typical buses that come from downtown, or the 50, I think, also comes here. And if you'd like to find out more about the Red Jam Slam Society, you can go to www.redjamslam.com. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to find more of these resonating reconciliation documentaries, Good you idea, can find yeah. it at www.ncra.com. .ca resonating reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And I'll post some links to that on my Coastal Voices page too, uh, so that everybody can have who enjoys Coastal Voices uh, programming will also be able to find programming from all across Canada on uh, NCRA's page where there's a multitude of different documentaries in part of the resonating reconciliation effort. So that about does it for us. Thank you so much for coming on air with me. It's been great. It's usually pretty lonely in here. So it felt like five minutes. Yeah, totally. Huh? And uh, thanks to everyone at the NCRC and NCRA um, organization for coming to the conference and helping us out and helping us make... Th- this uh, wonderful week. Go ahead. And a reminder that we're having a workshop here at the NCRC 2014 mm-hmm. in Victoria on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing a workshop on resonating reconciliation on uh, on the third is on Friday mm-hmm. uh, at one thirty. One thirty to three thirty, I believe. Yeah. And then after that, there's kind of a decompression session with Lindsay Delorand and uh, she's going to be making some crafts and we're going to be talking 
uh, talking it out, kind of, after mm-hmm. that. And uh, that'll be great, too. And then after that, if you're still on campus, the Red Jam Slam is up at uh, from 6.30 to 9 p.m. And I'll be there, and everybody will be there, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, come celebrate our survival. Mm-hmm. And it's free. Free, free. So I'm going to, on that note, leave you with... Um, Straight No Chaser. I'll uh, put on some of Tribe Called Red. And thanks, everybody. And thank you, Ganagi. You're welcome. Yeah. Okay. Everybody have a great week. I'll see you next week. Yeah, <laughs>